always felt held by a family, a real family, which everyone deserves. And you deserve. Shh, it's the film flavors. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. Caught off guard, I didn't know we were about to start. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. No, we're good. We're continuing our deep dives into our favorite A24 movies. And now we're going to talk about the feel-good movie of the century. Yes, and it's our number two. That's right. What does that say about us? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to explore the depths of our own codependency with Midsommar. How do you say it? Midsommar? 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 I, I think I just I say, just say Midsommar. Midsommar. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, every time I hear someone else say it, they're like, what, are you talking about Midsommar? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and an early fun fact, most people think Midsommar is, you know, maypoles and everything else. So May, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it just means like flowers on a pole or something like that. And it's actually taking place in June. Well, that's silly. It should be called a June pole. <laughs> this doesn't really have the white ring to it. June pole. <laughs> June pole. <laughs> We've selected our June queen. Me. Midsummer is a 2019 folk horror film written and directed by Ari Oster. The film stars Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner as a dysfunctional couple who travel to Sweden with a group of friends for a midsummer festival only to find themselves in the clutches of a sinister cult practicing Scandinavian paganism, the worst kind of paganism. Supporting actors include William Jackson Harper, Wilhelm Blongren, Elora Torchia, Archie Madikwi, and Will Poulter. <laughs> My apologies to everyone in Scandinavia. A co-production between the United States and Sweden, the film was initially pitched to Astor as a straightforward slasher film set amongst Swedish cultists. While elements of the original concept remain in the final product, the film's plot centers on a deteriorating relationship inspired by a difficult breakup which Astor himself experienced. The soundtrack, composed by British electronic musician Bobby Krillick, better known as the Hacks and Cloak, takes inspiration from Nordic folk music. The film was shot on location in Budapest in the summer and autumn of 2018. Okay, listeners. Do you feel held by him? Does he feel like home to you? Does he love you? <laughs> this is like Midsummer. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Will he mallet you? <laughs> Mal? Mallet. Oh, mallet. <laughs> I love that that's your sound. That's what it sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Dude, she needs a therapist. You've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for like a year now. And don't forget about all of the beautiful Swedish women you'll meet in June. Okay, guys. That's not her again. Seriously? Babe, what's happening? Danny. Danny. 
I was so very sorry to hear about what happened. I'm sorry. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skål! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. <laughs> How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? What is it? It has special properties. What am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate. I want to go. Absolutely not. What's happening? I don't know why you invited us. That's why you look so guilty right now, because you know. We only do this every 90 years. I was most excited for you to come. American psychology student and frequent pacer, Danny, played by Florence Pugh, experiences a devastating family tragedy when her sister murders her parents and herself by filling their home with carbon monoxide. Danny's in a four-year relationship with a cultural anthropology student, Christian, played by Jack Rayner, who she feels is growing more distant. In fact, the relationship puts the funk in dysfunctional. Christian has been wanting to end their relationship, encouraged to do so by his friends Mark, played by Will Poulter, and Josh, played by William Jackson Harper, but stays with her after the tragedy. Danny learns that Christian will be joining his friends on a month-long trip to Sweden to attend a midsummer festival with foreign student Pelle, played by Wilhelm Blomgren, at his ancestral commune. The festival happens once every 90 years, and Josh, who's writing his thesis on Midsummer Traditions, regards this as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. After an argument, Christian reluctantly invites Danny to join. The group arrives at the outskirts of the commune and are offered psychedelic mushrooms as a welcome gift. Danny hallucinates about her dead family and scampers off in a panic, and is found the following morning, just as everyone is led into the commune. Pelly's brother has also brought guests, Simon and Connie, of London. Pelly has failed to mention to the group that the festival is kind of fucked, and the day after their arrival they are treated to an Edestupa, a ceremony where two older commune dwellers commit suicide by jumping off a very high cliff to a rock below. When one of the elders survives the falls and wails in pain, his fellow commune folk mimic his cries. Thankfully, they have a ceremonial giant mallet with which to mercy bash his skull into muppety chunky salsa. 
Connie freaks the fuck out, but religious leader Siv tries to calm her by explaining that those in the commune who turn 72 sacrifice themselves and consider it to be a great honor. Connie and Simon are having none of it and decide to leave, but are separated and mysteriously driven to the train station one at a time. Danny also wants to leave, but is convinced to Pele to stay. He explains to her that he also lost both of his parents, but was emotionally raised by the commune. He asks her if she feels her relationship with Christian is emotionally fulfilling. In a real dick move, Christian tells Josh that he has decided to write his thesis on the commune and their midsummer festival, and Josh is pissed. The two each begin to pester the commune elders about learning more about their fucked up ancient ways and are granted an opportunity to look at religious texts which are written by oracles created by incest. When Mark pisses on a sacred tree, representing the commune's dead, he causes a scene and is later lured away by a young woman and never returns. He isn't the only one who has caught the attention of one of the young folk women. Christian has a secret admirer of his own, Maya, and she is dead set on getting into his pants. She plants a love rune under his bed, and during lunch, he discovers that his meat pie is actually a hair pie when he finds a pube in his mouth. Christian is also oblivious to the color of his drinks. He sips a beverage that is far more pink than everyone else's, perhaps tainted by something menstrual. Christian is summoned by Siv and is told that Maya has requested and has been granted the permission to mate with him. Later that night, Josh sneaks into the temple yurt, to photograph pages of the incest text, but is startled when he sees Mark's silhouette in the doorway. Except it's not Mark. It's someone wearing Mark's skin, Buffalo Bill style. Josh is bludgeoned and dragged away after he has to moisturize himself before they bring back the hose. He <laughs> <laughs> rubs the lotion on his skin. Or else he gets the mallet again. Or else he gets the mallet again. <laughs> <laughs> The following day, Danny and Christian are separated for the festivities. Danny's given a psychedelic tea and joins in the dance competition to be that year's May Queen. Christian is also offered the tea as he watches. He at first refuses, but then partakes. Danny is crowned the winner and is led to bless the livestock and crops, while Christian is led to the fertility yurt, where he finds Maya spread eagle on a bed of flowers surrounded by older naked women. Which? <laughs> As he gets his drugged bone on with Maya, the naked folk woman mimic her moans and encourage them to copulate, sometimes by pressing on his ass. Danny witnesses the crotch fruit making and runs away an emotional wreck. A group of young women mimic her wails and sobs. Christian flees the fertility yard after finishing and flies into the greenhouse where he finds Simon's flayed body hanging from the ceiling. He is yet again drugged and falls unconscious. For the final ritual, Siv explains that they will need nine sacrifices to rid them of evil. Four of the sacrifices, Josh, Mark, Connie, and Simon, are outsiders, and four are residents of the commune. Danny, as May Queen and resident Flower Pile, must choose the final sacrifice, another resident or Christian. She chooses Christian, who is taken away, stuffed into a bearskin, and placed in a sacrificing yurt with the corpses of his friends, the two cliff leapers, and the two resident volunteers. These volunteers are given a drug to make them feel no pain, but Christian is not. The sacrificing year to set ablaze, and the commune community wails in horror along with those burning inside. Danny sobs in horror and grief under all her flowers, but eventually begins to smile. 
The end. Yurt. Am I the only person who finds the word yurt funny? I mean, <laughs> they're not cabins per se. They're yurts. Let's go yurt in the dirt. I don't know. <laughs> Quick to the sacrificing yurt. Totally <laughs> funny when I say it like that. Christina. <laughs> Quick to the fertility yurt. <laughs> Grab the mallet. <laughs> Christina, bring the sacrificing mallet. <laughs> Midsummer was released in the U.S. on July 3rd, 2019, after six-week debate by the MPAA on whether the film would receive an NC-17 or an R rating, which it finally secured after many cuts were made to the film. It earned 6.5 million opening weekends, securing the number six spot at the box office. Midsummer will hold a spot in the top 10 throughout July before falling sharply down the box office. It would go on to gross $48 million worldwide against a reported budget of $9 million. Nice. Yeah. Midsummer holds an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score currently sits at 63%. The site's consensus reads, Ambitious, impressively crafted, and above all, unsettling. Midsummer further proves that writer-director Ari Aster is a horror auteur to be reckoned with. Audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film a grade of C+, and Screen Rant called it one of the most polarizing horror movies of 2019. Oh my... Thomas Lafley of RogerEbert.com rated the film four out of four stars, describing it as a terrifically juicy, apocalyptic cinematic sacrament that dances around a fruitless relationship in dizzying circles, much like your review. Eric Cohn of IndieWire summarized the film as a perverse breakup movie, adding that Oster doesn't always sink the biggest surprises, but he excels at twisting the knife. After a deflowering that makes Ken Russell's The Devils look tame, Oster finds his way to a startling reality check. What is the... I've never seen The Devils. I haven't either, but apparently it's a lot. I don't know that this was like... I think this was weird. Yeah. I don't think it was like super violent or anything as far as like the deflowering, if they're thinking about what I'm thinking about. And I don't think it was all that sexual either. There's a lot of flowering going on. There is a lot of flowering. D or otherwise in this movie. I think there's a lot of flowering and less deflowering. I mean, there's flowers fucking everywhere. Yeah, the flowers are more disturbing than the deflowering. I would have made. Anyway. Timeout's Joshua Rothkopf awarded the film a 5 out of 5 star rating, writing a savage yet evolved slice of Swedish folk horror. Ari Oster's hallucinatory follow-up to Hereditary proves him a horror director with no peer. Eh. (laughs) (laughs) Writing for Variety, Andrew Barker noted that it is neither the masterpiece nor the disaster that the film's most vocal viewers are bound to claim. Rather... It's an admirably strange, thematically muddled curiosity from a talented filmmaker who allows his ambitions to outpace his execution. I really agree with that one, actually. David Edelstein of Vulture praised Pew's performance as amazingly vivid and noted that Astor paces Midsummer more like an opera. Wagner, not Puccini, than a scare picture, you pretentious boob, (laughs) but concluded that the film, quote, doesn't gel because its impulses are so bifurcated. It's a parable of a woman's religious awakening that's also a woman's fantasy of revenge against a man who didn't meet her emotional needs. That's also a male director's masochistic fantasy of emasculation at the hands of a matriarchal cult. 
that's maybe taking it a tiny bit too far. You think? That's why I had to add that in there. I read that review and I was just like, you need therapy. What's your name? David Edelstein, a vulture. Come on. Like, obviously you have some issues uh, that you need to work out for yourself. And Oster is not there to do that for you. So the film has some accolades. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Film, but it lost to The Invisible Man. And uh, these Saturn Awards were in 2021. So Did it seems skip like them? years were missed during pandemic times. Well. Yeah. So it was up against several years worth of movies. That sucks. Yeah, it does. Because I feel like it would have maybe won. I'm not sad that Invisible Man won. Of course not. I think it's a superior movie, but um, different. Is it? I don't know if it's superior. Mm, I mean, I would say so. Uh, I would. That's tough. You know, like I would really like, especially with those two actresses' performances next to each other. That's tough. Well, and in this, I looked at the Saturn Awards for that year, and Florence Pugh was not nominated. Obviously, otherwise we would have said it. You know, but um, what's her name was from Invisible Man. What is her name? The Handmaid. And her tale, um, Alfred. Yes, Alfred. Alfred was nominated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so at the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards it won Best Wide Release Film Best Director Best Screenplay and Best Score it was nominated for Best Actress but lost in Lupita Nyong'o I don't know what she would have for us for us okay yeah that's another tough one I know for real tough I mean like I feel like pandemic early pandemic era movies horror movies were excellent right and some of their releasing was kind of fucked you know yeah. but it and especially if they were like not having ceremonies and things like that, they would be up against so many good things. Like it's just way too difficult to choose. Yeah. So Flores P did a great job here, but she only kind of had one note to play as opposed to like, you know, cow eyes and witch. she had a little bit more do. Yeah, she did. I don't know. I, uh, I mean, I feel like Florence Pugh in this movie is tremendous yeah, as she always, is. She, but, but by design, her character is very reactive. Yes, that that is that is true. She is reactive to everything that's happening around her or being said to her by all the characters. She's either a robot or she is, you know, whaling. She's mostly whaling. Whaling. She's whaling about. Whaling. She is a whaler. <laughs> Singing shanties or whatever they do in Scandinavia. She has to go hunt her whale. <laughs> in a bear suit. Yeah. So Jack Rayner uh, did an excellent job at making us hate him, you know, as Christian. Will Poulter, who is now in the MCU as Adam Warlock, apparently, and is jacked, uh, is his doofus self in this movie. He is quite the doofus in this movie. He's like the only sense of like comedic relief, and it's not even that funny. Yeah. William Jackson Harper, who was on The Good Place, yeah, as well as in the MCU now, in the latest uh, multi or whatever, Ant-Man, Quantumania. So was Florence Pugh. Oh, yeah, shit. Yeah, she was great in that. So, my God. Whatever. I'm just going to stop listing that. Is everybody in the MCU now? I don't know. Uh, Wilhelm Blomgren as Pelle, who was great. He has more to do. Um, Archie Medequi, I don't know, as Simon. And Alora Torchia as Connie. And those are the two, our two Londoners. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And a slew of Scandinavian actors and actresses. That possibly. we cannot pronounce, so we apologize. That's right. Um, but, I mean, like... The the extras in this movie and they're they're oh, legion. Man. My God. I feel like I feel like the the commune folk in this movie. There needs to be like some sort of like community Oscar for like extras and you know, for a lot of those people had lines, you know. Yeah. But. 
Well, I feel like at the SAG Awards, you know, when they give like their version of what the best picture is for that year, it's considered to be an ensemble award for acting, right? Because it's all Screen Actors Guild. Yeah. And so I feel like as a whole, everybody in this movie was really, really good. Like no one, I don't think there's any subpar acting in this. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because they are just excellent actors or they were given like material to work with, but I think the extras and a lot of the the Scandinavian actors and actresses in this movie are really good at yeah. what they're doing because there's a lot of shit going on in the background of this movie, you know, and like they're just they're doing their thing. Yeah, know? this was meticulously done. Yes. You know, and so a lot of that's going to be Ari Aster. Right? Of course. Just getting it until he wants it or get it gets it until he guess what exactly what he gets once it whatever words he kubricks the fuck out of shit apparently i right? bet yeah to get some of these shots i would assume yeah mm-hmm. so developing this movie was not something that i would have thought because it's written and directed by ari aster mm-hmm. but he was approached to do it right yes. to take a concept essentially because after he directed hereditary that made over 80 million dollars and it became a24's highest grossing film yeah right um until recently with everything everywhere all at once and he was approached by producer executives um martin Kalkqvist and patrick anderson at be real films which is a swedish production company to helm a potential slasher film set in sweden an idea which astor initially rejected as he didn't feel like he had a, a way into the story I don't know that there's a way into that it's story. It kind of at seems all. kind of random. Yeah. I mean, or like very, very basic. It's like taking something that already exists and putting it, you know, just into a different kind of setting. And I I don't feel like that's very interesting at all. I feel that's try hard. Yeah. So he ultimately devised a plot in which two central characters are experiencing relationship tensions verging on a breakup and wrote the surrounding screenplay around that theme. So remember that he described the result as, quote, a breakup movie dressed in the clothes of a folk horror film. And that seems new. And yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say that. And it's very, very distinctive. And so there's a lot of kind of confusion and maybe over analysis in this film, I think. Yeah. I mean, I feel like and and I, I can't say that I don't feel the same way when I watch it. You know what I mean? I feel like I need to be reading a lot into what's going on and not just like what's going on in the movie, but like the actions of the characters themselves and like their motivations and things like that. And while I think there's a lot to mine there, I think I'm thinking about it too much. There's a lot of built in meeting, right? And there's a lot of visual, a huge amount of visual storytelling. Oh, completely. And, you know, but again, it's kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? And so there's a lot of critics, even with these quotes and like how it came about and how he describes the movie, still assigning a lot of meaning to this when I'm not quite sure it's there. And maybe this is just one of those where it wasn't super intentional or it was intentional with kind of a wink and a nod that a lot of this stuff is kind of built into it. Astor has mentioned the 1981 Albert Brooks film Modern Romance, as an inspiration for Midsummer, and also called it the Wizard of Oz for perverts. <laughs> okay. I feel like that might need to be explained to me a little bit. He's not bit. the only one. Like, we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. So Astor worked with the film's production designer, Henrik Svensson, to develop the film's folklore elements and the traditions of the Harga while visiting Hollingsland together. And he researched the Hollingsgards, centuries-old farms that typically had, like, painting on the walls to develop a stylized version for the set, as well as like midsummer celebrations in, in Swedish, German, and in English folklore. 
And he also researched spiritual movements and communities, saying that he particularly drew inspiration from Rudolf Steiner's Anthroposophy and the Theosophy movement, which are basically postulating the existence of an objective, intellectually comprehensible spiritual world with with rules accessible to the human experience. <clears throat> okay, that seems pedantic. Cultish. <clears throat> yeah, I mean that's a, a really long winded. Like that's really cultish. anthroposophy, and then the Theosophy movement is to say like, oh, we have like masters who you know might be thousands of years old living in Tibet who hold all the secrets, and like we kind of bow to them and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, there's this whole thing. I mean, and that's culty. present. It's, it's culty. Yeah. And it's present in the movie. Obviously, this movie is about a cult. I mean, at the end of the day, whether you want to call it that, call it a commune or what, but I... So he did detail work. Like he did a lot of research and he had help doing it, you know? And so he was able to kind of craft this this movie with like, you know, um, in this setting, kind of drop shipping this other story into the setting. And kind of just to see what happens, kind of like in a sandbox. And so finally they were able to film and the majority of the movie was shot in Hungary, of like we mentioned, rather than Sweden and Budapest. Mm-hmm. And primarily due to financial constraints because like Sweden limits daily film shoots to no longer than eight hours. Wow, that's how they do their work days. Well, you know, good for them, but they're not going to get that many films because no, people like to shoot fast. People like shoot at night sometimes too. Yeah. Well, there's probably not a lot of night in Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's different places for, I don't know. Yeah. So I, I find it interesting that we we're talking about two movies, <clears throat> two weeks, ap- well, a week apart, right? That Two households. <laughs> two households, both alike and referencing. I mean, so like they, he had both these directors, Ari Oster and Robert Eggers had a team of people to help him create a very distinct setting and place, right? And they're going and yeah. looking through all these- like, Two really, really dedicated production designers. Too, yes. Really. And so, I mean, like, I, I don't know that Oster went and, like, looked through a 37-volume tome <laughs> of, like, costume design or whatnot, but I feel like he really created an environment that I feel is real, right? Like, it seems- Real. It seems very Scandinavian. It seems very culty. Yeah. Right. I believe all of it, just like I believe everything that I see in The Witch. Right. And it's not like they went and and like found these places to film. Like they created. They're it. also kind of hanging lanterns on all the time. Right. So they have like an anthropology major and a psychology major and like you know two anthropology majors actually I believe. Uh huh. Right. And uh, they're all kind of looking at all this stuff and it's like, oh, is that ancient Nordic or is that like proto Nordic or is that, you know, this is like this out of stupa. And you've got people commenting on the plot in a way that makes it seem really kind of highfalutin. Well, it does. And like the people who are involved, they're asking these questions to and they're like, um, actually, you know, and so like everyone's wrong. You know, it's just like I love I love this, like people coming in thinking they know everything about the setting that they're in and they are deadly wrong. You Does know? highfalutin sound Swedish? Highfalutin? <laughs> God. Hello, Swedish people. <laughs> Bork. Um, sorry. <laughs> we need to check our listener base in Scandinavia just in case. Um, I will never say that the same way again. Thank you for that. Did you ever say it to begin with? Yes. I say highfalutin all the time. I'm very judgy. Highfalutin. Now I'm going to say it like the Swedish chef. 3D. Jesus. You did it. Okay. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> that was a 
the best thing I heard all day. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of highfalutin, <laughs> is the look and feel in music, essentially, right? Everything that's happening on screen and uh, kind of a masterclass. Like here is where he's like approaching like the, the height of craft, right? With everything that he's pulled together to give us like visually, you know, and audibly on the screen. No. Starting with that amazing cinematography. <laughs> I feel like Ari Aster is a very good visual director. I feel like Hereditary. Yeah. It's also the same cinematographer from Hereditary. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Now, I mean, like find a team that you work well with, right? And, cre- and create that and then recreate it just in a different kind of movie. But I feel like Hereditary has amazing visual storytelling. It does. And, and well, lots of things going on in the background. In a very literal way. Yeah, it's m- way more literal than this. Although this is kind of fucking literal too. I mean, if you think yeah. about the very opening sequence, right? Before you ever see Florence Pugh, you mm-hmm. know, it has an opening mural. It goes from um, from right to left, kind of going back in time. Yep. Right? And it foreshadows the events of the entire movie and provides clues pertaining to the contrasting fates of Danny and Christian. Looking closely, it also reveals Pele as the mastermind behind the invitation to visit Harga. Right there at the beginning of the film. You just have to, like, kind of look at it, essentially, right? right? I mean, yeah, it's I mean, it's like a tapestry, right? And like tapestries will tell a story. Yeah, a lot of they have tap- tapestry. They have like like it's mostly like paintings on the walls and like stuff mm-hmm. like that. And they've got the the murals, right? And so also when they reach the village, Connie and Simon look at the tapestry that shows a woman falling in love with a man, placing flowers under his pillow, hiding her pubic hair in his food, and resulting in the man's like falling in love and impregnating her. And the tapestry exactly for cast what Maya does to Christian before and during the May Queen celebrations. <clears throat> What's neat is that like. So, listeners, we have a Hot Takes episode on this movie. We do. Right? And did you go back and listen to it before we recorded No. Nor did I, because I didn't want to taint the things that I wanted to talk about now. I had forgotten about that taint. Really? I, but I, what I do remember is that we talked about that opening mural and the tapestry quite a bit in that hot take. I remember talking about this and saying, like, it's right in front of us the whole fucking time. Yeah. You know? And so, like, like none of it is shocking when things that happen in this movie are actually shocking, right? They should not be because they have been shown to us anyway. A lot of for literal foreshadowing, yeah. literal visual storytelling. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's happening right before us. <laughs> And also there's hidden images on the screen, which I like, you know, yes. some interesting, like, it's not even like American beauty, visual storytelling with the roses and blah, 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 and the curtain colors and blah, blah, blah. Right. It's all just there. Right. Yeah. It's so it's like, I don't know how high highfalutin it is, <laughs> but it's there. So, I mean, like toward the end of the film, if you haven't caught it, when Danny's lifted on the pedestal to be carried to the dinner table as a May Queen, like you can make out her sister's face in the trees with the exhaust tube in her mouth mm-hmm. from the beginning of the movie. That's right. And it's just like watching her and it's blinking. It's like looking at her, you know? And so it's just really, really like there's stuff like that in this movie. So and what does that mean though? I mean, like. What does that all mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I feel like I need to drink some psychedelic tea before I watch this movie, but I think it's contrast. I think it's lots yeah. of things. You know, I think it's all, it's still heavily on her mind. It's like everything that she's, she's, she's not thinking about being the May queen. She's thinking about her dead family. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that too, but I mean, all of it, the, the thing is, and that's the thing about this movie. And while I like this movie very, very much, I still think that I'm thinking too much about it, right? I think I need to just like let it be what it is. Well, it's tried to show us kind of like visually treat her guilt, survivor's guilt. And True. Things like that. Every yes. time she has like a positive moment, she's reminded of them, their death and things like that. There's a lot of stuff going on, you know, just to show how, how heavily it's on her mind in different ways. 
you know? And so I think that's, it's not much more to mind than that. And it's also fucking creepy, you know? And so it is, I that just, was the real goal. Something about my brain in this movie. I'm just like, there's deeper meaning. And I'm like, why am I trying to there describe really this? To may that? not be right. Exactly. I need to let it go. After you and I watched it together, I went back and rewatched the opening of the movie the next night. Like I watched from the opening to about the time they were walking into the commune. Okay. And I was just like, because I just wanted to see it again. And I mean, I think that's a speaks very highly about the film. But I also think that my brain is telling me like I'm missing something and maybe I'm not. It's because it's too easy and you think you're not working hard enough. Right. Yeah. So there's just like lots of stuff. There's like just like lots of little treats for the audience. Mm -hmm. Right. But none of it's like it's one of those things where it's like a mile wide but a couple inches deep. Yeah. I mean, I need to just remember that. And I don't think yeah. that's a fault of the film, but I think it's a misunderstanding. Yeah. And I think it could have been solved with some, you know, some slight fixes that maybe might come up later in the episode. Okay. So uh, also the effects, right? So there was like 60, apparently 60 plus different versions of the psychedelics effects that were tested, ultimately Shit. choosing one based on trial and error because they didn't want it to be distracting. They wanted people to still hear what's going on screen you know, to kind of not be brought out of it because of some big effects. So they decided to like subtle warping, you know, and for the close up seeing like grass growing through her feet and, you know, stuff like that, seeing how she was going to be like one with the commune and one with the community and one with the earth. Yeah. Well, I like, I like the tone of your voice when you say that, but I'm mean, like, hi, for Luton. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I feel like the effects in this movie are excellent. Um, we are always threatening to do a like top 10 movies to watch in an altered state kind of thing. And I feel like this movie is one of them for me, right? Like after we watched this movie the other night, I really wanted to like eat some mushrooms and then watch it again. I am the opposite. I know you like even writing the notes for this. I just, it feels kind of bad trippy. Yeah. And I've been there in real life and I don't want to go back. And I've had some bad trips too, you know, but like, I don't know, just, I, I kind of like, I, I do like the subtlety of what's going on. I mean, even if we are, we are looking directly at a character in the camera, right? So we're seeing Danny covered in flowers and one of the flowers is fucking breathing constantly on her head, you know? And it's just like, it makes you feel like you're a member of the commune, like watching things unfold, right? The trees seem to be breathing. Things are moving in a very lifelike kind of way. Like your environment is alive around you and some of it's subtle, some of it's not. And I, I just kind of want to watch this movie very, very stoned. Yeah. I think stoned is good. I I think mushrooms is bad. Right. And so it's like, there's a lot of familial kind of, tragedy and drama and trauma mm. in this and things like hereditary you know yes. it's like i can do a wet grid salad on drugs maybe 2001 a space odyssey yeah you know or something like that but not when it's like really getting close to that like you know requiem for a dream area yeah i think i would draw the line at that particular movie which is also very trippy you know but i was like no i would not watch requiem on mushrooms but i probably would watch midsummer okay will i do it yeah probably not no so the music was done by Bobby Krillick, who we already mentioned as Haxon Cloak, um, who, he, you know, Ari Aster handpicked him because of his electronic dark ambience project that he did like back in 2012 or 13, okay. somewhere around there. He's done like TV shows and movies and stuff since then, I think, too. 
Um, but there's lots of diegetic music. Tons, almost all of it. Like you're never quite sure if the music is coming from like the setting and that introduces that pretty quickly. Like you think it's happening, you know, you start, start hearing like, <laughs> whatever, you know, and some of like the more ambient music that you would have thought was going to be in the soundtrack is actually diegetically being sung or played on the screen within that world. And I think that was kind of unique as well and done very well. Yes, it is. And it's it's very, very uh, Wicker Man-y, right? Highfalutin. <laughs> Highfalutin, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> ruined. But with actual flutes. Yes. <laughs> Highfalutin. That's what I said. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't wait to do the fucking chef again. So the thing is, I mean, we're talking about the look and feel and mise-en-scene of all this, right? And like you hear that music and the camera is panning in such a way that it takes like what feels like sometimes 17 minutes to get to the people who are playing the instruments. And then you realize that it's happening all around them. Again, immersive or whatever. (laughs) Where are the mushrooms? Like, bring them, please. Super immersive. Like to be an actor on that set, like walking through the archway and going into that. Uh-huh. commune for the first time where people are like banging the drum slowly or whatever <laughs> <laughs> and someone's playing the high flute and <laughs> i mean can you imagine method is what was going on on that set <laughs> speaking of high flutin let's talk about more highfalutin highfalutin <laughs> highfalutin <laughs> as we are victims of this movie this movie is victims of critical analysis <laughs> look at my face just now y'all <laughs> okay let's see like let's break this down i'm just i just put this one in one big lump call category this person was just trying to get all the credit so uh writing in the guardian steve rose described midsummer as quote a powerful study of grief betrayal breakups and more and more wow could you elaborate yeah (laughs) (laughs) rose suggests that danny's three male companions may be as representing toxic masculinity or analogs of the three male companions or analogs of the three (laughs) male companions in the wizard of oz namely the 10-man cowardly lion and scarecrow and other themes as well. Yeah. Rose also proposes that the film may be read as a quote parable of snarky, city smart, modern rationalism undone by primal rich rural values, end quote. Alternatively, in addition to, he proposes the village's uh traditions could be read as far right, white nationalist, or eugenicist. Okay. All of it. Yes, he's, it's he's, all just built-in themes, man. Like, stop trying to get credit for it. Like, he's so extra. With it may this. be about all this stuff and other things as well. <laughs> this movie certainly has themes. Come on. Okay. Um, A rose by any other name, Steve. Would <laughs> stink as sweet. Also, uh, Alyssa Wilkinson uh, of Vox, not Fox, Vox, Described Midsummer's story as following Danny's emotional journey and following a fairy tale convention where Danny loses her family at the beginning and goes on to become a queen, as with Cinderella and Snow White. Mm. Aster himself said, quote, we begin as Danny loses a family and we end as Danny gains another one. And so, for better or worse, the, ha- the Harga are there to provide exactly what she is lacking and exactly what she needs in true fairy tale fashion. I can see that. In this movie. Highfalutin. Highfalutin, but apparent, you know? Yes. Um, <clears throat> so I want to go back to this Wizard of Oz thing, unless you have plans to talk about that mm. further. No, I don't. I don't plan to talk about that at all because I think it's stupid. I mean, I agree, but I want to know, like, who is who? 
Well, you could say the cowardly lion. Would be Will Poulter. Yes. Okay. The Tin Man. Uh, the Tin Man. Is Christian because yeah. no. he doesn't have a heart? No, 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 no. Is Josh? Is Josh. No, because he's so like. He needs a heart. <laughs> okay. All right. And he's kind of, you know, like wooden, you know, he's a little bit more straightforward. Sure. And, and the scarecrow. Needs a brain? Needs a brain. And that's Christian. Okay. And also in his dorm on his fridge is a little picture of the scarecrow. Oh, God. On the fridge. <laughs> Highfalutin. <laughs> All right. Which probably just was just enough to give these people, like, you're, you're watching this again, trying to get all the tidbits. Feeling like you're getting extra credit for, like, I don't know, Miss Anderson back in third grade. I don't know. <sighs> now I feel bad for rewatching the opening to this movie, and I feel my rating dropping a half star as we speak. <laughs> and yet it's not close enough. Like, it's trying to do way too much. To try and have, like, earn those analogies, like, to earn that level of meaning. Oh. And maybe if you really thought about it, you could make it work. But that's the point is because there's almost nothing there. You have to make it up for yourself. Yeah. And sometimes like, that's kind of like a Rorschach. We find meaning in art. That's true. Based on our own interpretation. And maybe that's part of it. That is very, very true. I mean, because, like, interpretation is inherently selfish. And so, like, the more you watch something, the more you experience something, you're going to get something out of it. But, like, that... Everything that these people said seems like a lot. Some of it's very obvious and some of it's just really stupid. Well, you know, speaking of selfish, (laughs) Monica Wolf discussed Midsummer as reflecting themes of globalization (laughs) and American imperialism in a 2022 article in the Journal of Popular Film and Television. So she outlined the film's competing ideologies of femininity versus masculinity, academic knowledge versus folk knowledge, and capitalism versus communism writing that, quote, the horror of the film is driven by the objectified other's resistance to the imperial power's desire to dominate physical, a physical place and own ideological space, but is complicated by a suggestion that, in this unique case, run on sentence, the other is also a nationalist right-wing power and the tension between home and foreign reflects that of a new Cold War. <laughs> yes, all of it, sure. But it's kind of built in, you know? It's the fish out of water. Yeah, I mean, I get that, but I, that's like... You're reading too much into this. You're reading way too much globalization into that. I don't think this movie is about no. that. No. It is far more of a microcosm than anything you could look at globally. Yeah, I don't think there's like a clear microcosm here. You know, there's like the whole like religion versus not religious thing. Science versus religion is sure. a little bit more clearer to me, you know, than like academia versus like you know, thought ownership or like globalization, you know, and the Americans going in there and kind of owning a space, you know, things like that. That's all kind of built in, you know? I don't, I mean, I I really feel like from an American standpoint, like the people who come to this commune are, are there to experience and study, you know, not to, not to change or take over, which is what imperialism would be, right? These people are showing up to experience things that, they may not want to once it gets started, you know, but like they're not there to to judge or change or like do. But they are judging, right? At the first out of stupa when they witnessed the 72-year-olds falling to their death, you know, and it's explained to them that we view life differently. We view it in seasons and that is the end of the season and the baby is born and we'll take their name, you know, and it's great honor yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But they're viewing it through their Western eyes and it's all built in. But if you can get past that, you know, it's still a fucking cult at the end of the day. It is. It's still causing damage and killing and murdering and raping people at the end of the day. So yeah. you have to move past that because that's not that that theme feels very hollow when you see what these people are actually doing. 
One of my favorite things that we had said off mic after we watched this movie the other night was you were you you said these people were murdered and I was just like no they were sacrificed and you were just like no they were murdered and I was like there's a difference Karen <laughs> I know <laughs> I mean but I feel like there's a there's a difference you know um maybe not within within the eyes of the law but no when he was taking pictures of the book the sacred book yeah right he was murdered oh he was murdered yes <laughs> but for the greater good. When the guy pissed on the tree, he was murdered. For the greater good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For the greater good of that commune. For whatever they believe in, you know? I mean, like, it's wrong, but I don't think it's the same thing. It's just like going into someone's home and killing them. I don't know. This is a random conversation we're having. I just really liked your reaction that night. because <laughs> The look on your face was like, no, they were murdered. And I'm like, eh, were they? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you could you could say it's for the greater good of Ghostface's legacy for killing, you know? <laughs> they needed to be sacrificed for Gale Weathers' book. <laughs> but, I don't they, know. but they weren't sacrificed, though. I mean, like, these people ascribe just, like, some sort of meaning to the actions that they are taking. You know what I mean? I just don't see it the same For way. the community kills, yeah. But for the outward kills... Not so much. They could mask that. You could totally rationalize I mean, it that way. They didn't write those incest texts in the script. Like, do you know who was wearing the face of Will Poulter that killed the guy that was taking the picture? Like Pele, I don't know. Uh, Pele is the one that knocked him out and knocked his skull off. But the guy that was wearing Will Poulter's face is the guy that was yelling at him. And when Will Poulter was like, "Is this guy gonna kill me?" Oh. That was the guy that was wearing his face. So it was revenge sacrificing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll <laughs> knock you about the ear, nose, and throat. I'm just doing it for the reaction at this point. It'll be I'm... for the greater good. <laughs> Everybody would be better because of it. <laughs> you finally understand. Moving <laughs> <laughs> <Hang> on. <laughs> Before you kill me. The sacrifice. Okay. So uh, there's also a theme in here that I want to, like, that I didn't really I don't see anyone really talking about. Maybe okay. I'm blind. I don't know. But like community and catharsis, right? That's like the heart of this thing, right? Yeah. That's the draw of the cult, right? Individualism versus group catharsis. There's something really attractive about a community stopping everything to console you. Yes. Not to stop you, but to feel your pain with you, to move through it with you in solidarity. What a powerful draw that level of validation must be for people in cults are attracted by cults. I would say it's the most powerful drug. Yes. A sense of community is the reason why people do this. Exactly. But is that how human <clears throat> relationships actually work? And is it really, for the most part, hollow? Um, I mean, I I don't know. I think there's something very powerful about what you experience with your fellow man and with yourself. But at the end of the day, they'd fucking sacrifice her so to look at her. <laughs> you know, one of us. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I think... At that point, you know, once she has made a choice and they made a choice that they probably wanted her to make, you know, like she actually became a member of that society. I don't know. This is this movie has kind of a non-ending. I think you really have to think about like what her trajectory is after the movie's over. I think it's a great. I just kind of like The Witch. I think it the, the ending is fairly clear to me. Yeah, I mean, I I guess we can talk about that later on, but I, it's I, not an effective ending, but no, <laughs> it's clear. Not at all. But catharsis is something that really is very, very powerful. I was moved almost to tears. Like the first time I saw this, when she's dealing with seeing Christian essentially cheat on her, which yeah. not his fault. 
you know, and then she moves into the whatever the flurga. <laughs> it's called <laughs> and everyone's like she's starting to wail and then they start to like catch her rhythm and do it with her and she you can tell like she appreciates it well she does and they almost kind of like slow her down a little bit it's, they're like wait yes. wait they're letting for us. her breathe yeah you know like we're going to do this with you we're going to work through this right now and i i don't know that it's like synchronized swimmers or some shit. You know? like <laughs> synchronized really... wailing, synchronized yeah. grieving. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I really like some of the moments when the community is sort of like mimicking or trying to go through the same emotions seem kind of Muppety to me at parts. That particular moment feels very real. The end seems more Muppety and hollow to me. Oh, when everyone's burning to death and they're screaming. But it also, yes, because yeah. the cult is a fucking lie. Right? Okay, yeah. During the sacrifice at the end of the movie, Ingmar and Ulf are given uh, dew from the yew tree. And as they're fed that- You do? Uh, yeah, you do you. <laughs> that sounds like a soda. <laughs> <laughs> the baby with the power. Um, <laughs> you remind me of the cult. <laughs> <laughs> so as they're fed that dew, Ulf is told, feel no pain. And Ingmar is told, feel no fear. As the building burns and the fire inches closer to them, Ingmar looks at Ulf with fear. And Ulf gazes back before the fire engulfs him and he starts to scream. Yeah. This could possibly indicate that, of course, the last moment both Ingmar and Ulf realize that everything they've been told is a lie, but are unable to do anything about it and unfortunately die without being able to warn others. Except that they are heard and everyone else drowns them out by screaming and rolling on the ground and everything else. So how much of this emotional response is taught, right? Mm. Like from youth, you know? But. Okay. Feel no fear. Feel I no feel pain. like every time Whatever. I talk, every time I talk about this cult, you're gonna think of me as maybe a bad person, you know. But I, I don't even feel like teaching someone to feel empathy is a bad thing, you know. No, no, that's the draw. Like right. We talked about that, and I like it. Seems very, very attractive to a little me. bit like too much of a good thing, right? It's the same kind of complicated bouquet we got in the witch, right? Yeah, which is like this is your only option. And you got exactly what you wanted, but it's not the way you wanted. And now it's toxic and nasty and gross and sad. And that's the tragedy of it. Yeah. Right? That's the bouquet that we were presented by Ari Aster and Robert Eggers. What's thou love a taste of you do? What's thou love to lick that maypole? I don't think. <laughs> What's thou love to wail deliciously? I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I mean, but like, whether that's the case or not, I, I, I still don't think that it's the most unattractive thing to like want to be a part of a community that will be there for you emotionally. A family, right? Y- yes. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's but I'm obviously... also not the person who's going to like volunteer to go into the sacrificing year. You know, I'm like, y'all do that. You or make a hair pie or drink the flavor aid yeah. or any other version of this. Or like, you I'm know, just, I'm just here for the fellowship and the meat pies that have no hair in it. Follow the new Christ into a building in Waco, you know, any one of those things. <laughs> <I know. laughs> <laughs> I like it here, but y'all are kind of Koreshian. For real. So my theory, as you know, we've seen from quotes from Ari Aster himself, and the making of this and the, the writing of it, was it's about the relationship. Full stop. Agreed. Right? So sure, there are other things going on sociologically, politically, anthropologically, but at the core of this film is about deteriorating relationship ruled by codependency and inconsistent boundaries, which is ironic considering she is a psychology major. Yeah. Christian's drive in the relationship is fueled by guilt. He's trapped in an unsure relationship by Danny's trauma. He cared about her just enough to take care of her during that. 
right? And knew that pulling away at that moment, you know, it was really bad timing because they were about to break up, right? Anyway, so Danny's drive is the need for anything solid and constant in her life after witnessing that drama, even before trauma, you know, giving up all self-respect and boundaries to get it. We see that again and again and again. You forgot my birthday. Oh, I should have reminded you. Mm-hmm. She's like, comes right up to the cusp of, of like telling him she's upset and that she has a right to be until he gets upset. And then she says, oh, I should have done this, you know, and it's just toxic and codependent, you know? And so she's kind of half of the engine of this fuel that's keeping this thing going, you know? There are moments in this movie, and I, I think that we commented on it early on when we were watching it on this rewatch, that um, it's almost cringy, the level of codependency they have. It's cringy on his part, and it's cringy on her part. Yeah, it's a it's a two-way codependent street. That's why it's co, right? Yeah. I mean, like, it's just awful to watch. She enables him, he enables her. <clears throat> and watching it sometimes, I can look in my head and be like, fuck, I have made the same kind, the same kind of like relationship mistakes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like this, this entire movie, yes, it's it's about a cult, right? It's about sacrifice. It's about lots of things, community. But at the end of the day, it's about like the the destruction, the inevitable destruction of a relationship that probably should have never started in the first place. Exactly. But and, it's it's also just about bad timing. You yeah. Know? I mean, the tragedy is where she was in her life when all of this stuff happened, too. Well, and I think even before, because she alludes to the fact, I mean, her sister's bipolar, right? And she's like, she kind of like, it's the same shit I've dealt with over and over and over again my entire life. You know, like as a psychology student, she should have thought out, sought out the therapy that she needed to begin with and not try to find it in a significant other, you know? Should have, could have, would have, you know? Obviously. It's all too late, you know? And then they got into an even worse situation, obviously, well, that neither of them were prepared for. And he's dead now and she's fine. Yeah. And so it's and just kind of a confluence of events. But, you know, there's a lot of mud in this thematic water. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so I was thinking, like, it's really cool that we watch The Witch and Midsummer together. Some Agreed. of the times that we watch films together, we do because it's a 24 or because of this other fame or whatever, but they're actually kind of similar in the way they end. And they're kind of, they're kind of feminist themes and relationship themes and, and things like that. And this, they both have like that uncomfortable bouquet of emotion, you know, but I feel like the witch is a little bit more focused, right? Midsummer just is less focused in its themes than the witches It's a much smaller cast, much more straightforward arc for the characters. I think there's an overswing that starts to muddy the waters thematically based on the sheer tragedy at the beginning of the movie with the murder-suicide of Danny's family, and then an overswing at the end with the rape and murder of Christian, right? And so if our focus is this relationship, really our emotional minds are going to the tragedy at the beginning, and then the murder and a death of the like their relationship seems like such a small thing compared to everything happening kind of around them. So that creates a real moral confusion that takes away from the understanding of the core drama of the movie and makes the, the much needed catharsis at the end less clearly understood or empathetic because we're supposed to feel like, oh, she got what she needed or wanted. She's getting catharsis from the group. You know, she's getting catharsis from the cult. And, you know, Christian finally got the end he deserves, you know. Yeah, there's a touch I don't of know revenge that an in indifferent that. boyfriend deserves to be raped and murdered and burnt alive, you know, sacrificed, as you would say. <laughs> <laughs> he got a cool costume. Potato, potato. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, you know, but it creates kind of confusion because <clears throat> the, the thing that, that I would want to feel as an audience or I would want my audience to feel, you know, in that moment, if it's about the relationship is, is kind of how we're supposed to feel at the end of the invisible man. Yeah. A lot of good catharsis for that mm-hmm. journey that she's been on versus there's no real abuse there, right? The abuse is what's done to them by that cult, the tragedy at the beginning with her family, you know, and the tragedy at the end. And then she smiles, you know, and so it's really uncomfortable and not, not as focused. And you're like, you're a lot of audience members were not just uncomfortable, which is fine, but also kind of confused, where what am I supposed to feel about this and not really being led to water, um, you know, through the, like the layers of an onion that is, you know, the muddy waters of this thematic ocean. I kind of feel like <clears throat> since we're talking about this, you know, versus the witch or compared to the witch. Right. The difference is, is that like Eggers made a very, very tight slow burn and Oster has made a very long, not slow burn. You know, I mean, this is a very long movie. It doesn't feel long to me at all watching it. Like, it feels like very, very quick. Like, things are happening. And I, I didn't feel like it was a two and a half hour long movie. Right. And I don't know. I I think you're right with this, this like muddied watered aspect of it. I feel like we're sort of like force fed what we should feel about it. I feel like there's way more revenge going on at the end of this than there should be. It's just two movies in one. He wanted to write a movie about his relationship. Right. But he was paid to make a movie about folk horror. About a Swedish cult. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it kind of all happened at once based on what was going on in his mind, probably going through that breakup. Probably. Or just having gone through it, you know? And so I'm like, I don't know that the witch would have been better served by the very beginning, them leaving, you know, because all of their grandparents or all of their extended family were horrifically, horrifically murdered and of some sort of murder suicide. And at the end, you know, floor, you know, um, cow eyes have to choose one of her family members to, to die or something. I don't know that it would have been better served that way. Certainly would have been more confusing thematically. Yeah. Not sure where to put my emotions on that. 30 minutes later into the film, I'm still thinking about the tragedy at the beginning, you know? And so thematically, structurally, it's a little muddy and it kind of boggles my mind a little bit that the film couldn't have become more focused on the page before it ever got to the screen. It's like they tried to balance the tragedy with catharsis with the bookends, but those two things are so much bigger than the actual relationship in the middle. It almost doesn't seem to matter. The main subject matter of the film almost becomes an afterthought because he wanted to stuff it so much with all this meaning, with all this other stuff. It's like he got really, really excited and autistic about it. And it's just like made this whole thing, you know, jumbled it up and like put it on a pretty bow. And it is. It's such a pretty bow. It is. It's I so mean, highfalutin. It's very highfalutin. And like it's just wrapped up very, very nicely. Right. And, and from a visual standpoint. But I mean, I think that you're right. I think that a lot of the core of this movie about the relationship is kind of lost. And maybe it could have been better if they would have cut just a little bit out of it, made it a little bit of a shorter movie. And it's fine how it is, you know, like it's it's like this is their relationship, but drop shipped into this really weird and specific situation. Fine. But if you're really wanting us to our takeaway to be about the relationship, then you missed the mark a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. And it's still during this conversation, I feel like my rating is dropping a half star like as I'm fucking talking about. Yeah. I mean, and mine raised kind of a half star because it's just so well put together because the fairy tale aspects, the acting, the cinematography, the visual storytelling, it all approaches genius levels of greatness. Right. And this is a five star movie that tried to do so much. It forgot its own purpose somewhere along the way. That's true. 
that's very well said about this movie, actually. So let's talk just briefly about the fucking smile. Right. I know we've sort of like touched on it. Yeah. Right. So we talked a lot about the end of the witch about, you know, what's going on there. What's going on with Danny in this? Like, is she, what is she happy for herself or is she just like, is that some sort of crazy smile on her face? I don't, I don't even know. She found her agency, right? Like she got her onus. <laughs> she, <laughs> she found her onus. <laughs> she found her star onus. <laughs> Right. She's finally in control. She now has the power over life and death. Instead of something happening to her, she is making things happen. She yeah. is now the May Queen. And the indifference that caused just as much pain to her as the tragedy in some ways, that is a wound. And then witnessing his rape and, and, and murder, essentially, like his, even though she didn't realize it was a rape, yeah. you know, has manipulated her into exacting that revenge. And so she is able to, just like someone that might cut their hair, cut their own skin, or try and make something work in the world, or an alcoholic father beating his children, or someone trying to make a difference in life because it's the only power they have, she's finally found it. You know, and she also has found catharsis and meaning through everyone else giving her validation. She it's has. hollow as fuck and it's a tragedy. It is. It is. And that's why she's smiling. It's because she finally has feels like she has some control and some understanding. And, and some sense sad. of family too. You know, I mean, like there's there's a moment in this movie because <clears throat> step by step, you can see her sort of like accepting the things that are going on around her, even though she's sometimes vocally against it. Right. But there's a moment when she's dancing around the Maypole during that competition and she can suddenly speak Swedish and I'm like, is this drug induced or whatnot? Or is this just another way to like really drive home that she's finding her family? Multiple right? things. Yeah. yeah. And so I just like that, that part just stands out because she's literally talking to someone. She's like, I don't speak Swedish. And that person, that commie person is like, but you are, you're doing it right now. Exactly. Right? You know, but it's hollow again, because of what just happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Feel no fear and feel no pain. They're screaming and fucking pain and fear. Well, and she was given drugs before she even did that. Yeah. Right? And then um, guess what? You know, five minutes after the credits roll, they're probably going to be like, oh, hey, the, the Bay Queen's the last to die. And we're going to crucify you upside down on the charred remains of your bare boyfriend or give me those flowers and get to work here's your scythe your <laughs> here's your ceremonial sacrificing mallet get to work get on top of that cliff girl <laughs> <laughs> not to scare you but you will soon be 72 <laughs> start picking out the rock you want to leap on now <laughs> i'm sorry sacrifice <laughs> Sacrifice, whatever. It's no sacrifice. Elton John wrote a whole song about gluten. this movie. <laughs> Filled with gluten. I don't know. <laughs> you have some fun facts for me? Kind of. I'm more like, huh, facts. Facts that this make you go, huh? More common these days, when we're especially when we're doing wet Grinch salads. I mean, yes. So when the film was released in Sweden, rather than eliciting fear in the audience, many people laughed. Many Swedish critics praised the film as an excellent black comedy. Someone recently told me this. Yeah. So, and I was just like, come what? Yeah. Also, despite being the main characters and with the exception of cries and screams, neither Danny nor Christian speak in the last 25 minutes of the movie. What? It's all like visual storytelling. Yeah. I don't think I fucking realized that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, there's a director's cut. Yes. And there's 23 extra minutes, including Connie's death and some extra conversations and moments emphasizing the political background or flavor of the cult, like white supremacy and all that. We didn't really touch on that because it's so obvious. Um, 
you know, there's extra sound effects and there's some different angles for the same scenes were cut in versus like added. So there's like different ways. Like it's a kind of a different movie and there's a little bit extra like explanation, exposition, most of it. This is not the not rated version. This is not the NC-17 version with the extra nudity somewhere that exists or I, it's on the cutting room floor, but it's not in that director's version. I don't feel I need to see the director's cut of this movie. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's disturbing enough already. I mean, it's it's fine. The, the movie is good on its own. I don't need those 23 minutes like to make it better. I think it's a really good movie. So I also don't need someone like really explaining any more than parts of it already are. Yeah. So. So on her breakdown scene with the Harga, Florence Pugh commended the other women involved, saying that they made the scene possible as she typically struggles to cry on camera. And she reflected, quote, I knew I would never be so open and so raw and so exhausted like I was that day ever again. Yet she cries on screen in almost every fucking movie she's in. That ensemble that she cried with did such a good job. All those actresses are good. They're excellent during the it, dance competition. It almost competition seems like an acting and, exercise. You know? Yes. I mean, you're exactly right. It's just like some sort of like ad lib warm up before the actual thing. Today we learn empathy. You know, like, I don't know. Yeah. We're going to share emotion today, class. Let's all <laughs> sit cross-legged and hold hands and breathe into each other's mouths. And drink but, your mushroom tea. <laughs> don't forget your mushroom tea. <laughs> <laughs> so in April 2020, A24 announced it would be auctioning off props from its films and television series, including the 10,000 silk flower May Queen dress worn by Florence Pugh, which was reportedly purchased by the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures for 65000 I believe I've seen in that museum. So after both Ariana Grande and Halsey had uh, expressed interest on social media to purchase it. In fact, sub fun fact, Ariana Grande had a 27th birthday midsummer theme. I know I loved her for a reason. Come on. She seems like something. I don't know that she well, it's like, do you get it? Like, do you no, she, I mean, she probably doesn't. I just like flowers. So, I just wanted to be in flowers, y'all. <laughs> Where's my flower pile? It's my birthday. Where's my ponytail holder? No, this is in the Academy Museum. And when I finally make my pilgrimage there, I will probably come all over that case. Don't come on that case, girl. <laughs> The sex scene between Christian and Maya was filmed on the final day. Oh. So Rayner said that he spent time attempting to boost morale among the other cast members involved, uh, none of whom spoke English, including Isabel Grill, who played Maya, who was appearing in her first feature film role. He reflected he felt male nudity was unusual for a horror film, where female nudity is more typical. Mm -hmm. He said that he, quote, advocated for as much full frontal nudity as possible. I really wanted to embrace the feeling of being exposed and the humiliation of this character. And I felt really, really vulnerable, more than I had actually anticipated, end quote. And he said he prepared for it, like, by watching, like, um, Last House on the Left, you know, where... You know, the girls like strip naked. And it's like run away from the house and everything else. And it's just like, yeah, you know, this is essentially like the opposite. You know, we're watching essentially this rape and murder happen to a guy. But it's also another theme, right? It's like because we're not sure how we feel about that, right? Mm -hmm. as, as compared to what would happen to a girl. So the film's such central sex scene, you know, between Christian and Maya had been the subject of debate as to whether it depicts rape. So an article in Sexuality and Culture asserts that, quote, the ambiguous nature of the scene may be viewed as problematic because it blurs the line between consent and sexual assault, and that the film has implications for contemporary understandings of rape, particularly of males. I can see that. I call it a rape. I, he was drugged very specifically. Type of, he was not given the same mushroom tea. 
He was given something else to make him docile and do exactly what he was told. And then we have a old woman pushing on his ass to try and impregnate the the girl. She is doing that, but I feel... It's uh, it's it's a blurred line because he walks to the fertility year kind of on his own, right? Well, if you would no, he's he's led, you know, trail of flowers and all that. And then if you remember the guy clapping in his face and he goes down and he's like, Why did you do that? You know, he's like completely fucked. Yeah, you're right. He is like a moldable piece of clay. He had a roofy flower colada, clearly. And so, yes, that was rape, you know, and it might have been designed that Florence Pugh saw it. I would say probably so. You don't want to go in there. We just cross within 10 feet of the door of the people like orgasming, you know. (laughs) What's that noise? (laughs) Oh, no. But we're not not going to stop you from going in there and seeing him. Yeah. It is all by design. Let's manipulate the situation so that you kill him instead of one of our own. How (laughs) culty. I have never heard anything more culty in all my life. (laughs) (laughs) I like those facts. As always, never doubt yourself. Facts are good. But we have some questions to ask about Midsommar. I still care about your feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Fun or otherwise. (laughs) Wait, did I say that? (laughs) All right, we're going to start with Sillily. Sillily? Sillily. That's a word. It's it's a culty word. Is Midsommar a horror movie? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It's tough. It's a tough one. It is. There's lots of malatry. Trauma, as Jamie Lee Curtis would pronounce it. <laughs> there is trauma going on. Um, there's like Muppety crushed skulls and like foots being buried in like flower beds and shit. I mean, like there's the blood eagle. Yeah, that. People burning alive. I mean, it's a horror movie. Always, always, right? But I really love, you know, the the quote-unquote elevated horror movies because, again, like we talked about with The Witch, I think there's a subset of people and mostly, you know, popcorn theater growers who are like, no, right? One of those being my mother. I took my mom to see this movie and, A, it was very uncomfortable watching this with her. And we walked out of it. And she was just like, that wasn't even scary. That's not a horror movie. And I was just like, the fuck you say? Like, I'm not even going to have this debate with you. Of course that was a fucking horror movie. No, I was laughing because I just started thinking like, what if we just like started putting Cher from Clueless in all of the (laughs) Ari Aster movies? Because he had sent me that thing from like, what was it? TikTok? (laughs) It was hereditary. (laughs) (laughs) And the little kid's head gets decapitated. Spoiler alert. On the road. And it's like, it cuts to Cher going, "Mm, should I leave a note driving by or whatever? (laughs) What would she be doing in this one? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well it's the car with the exhaust pipe going up <laughs> oops <laughs> should I leave a note <laughs> leave it to us to take a horribly traumatic like thing and be like let's put Cher in it <laughs> and not the gay one <laughs> I don't trust mirrors I have to take a polar of myself wearing this bear outfit whatever God. <laughs> <laughs> not the gay one it's pretty fucking gay oh not sporadically <laughs> oh, my book is cult or fat stay tuned for our last film flamers month where we cover Nell and Clueless <laughs> it was nice knowing you Taking the win <laughs> be seeing ya <laughs> hope not sporadically <laughs> 
<laughs> were you scared while watching Midsummer? Oh gosh, yeah, probably. Probably the first yeah. time. I'd be uncomfortable for Very sure. Very uncomfortable. Yeah. Sad. <clears throat> There's a lot of sadness in this. Like this movie is not a feel good film. No, and not even in like the fun, cathartic tears streaming down your face deep into the ocean kind of way. No, I mean like I I don't think that I cried while watching this the first time. I kind of teared up a little bit on this rewatch, but I I wasn't like bawling. I didn't get that like I really need a good cry, so I'm going to sit down and watch Midsommar kind of feel, yeah. right? So it's just not that kind of movie, but it's very very depressing and very uncomfortable and but not sort of out rightly scary i think i've seen a lot of these things sort of before but uncomfortable yeah so for real um out of five stars what would you give midsummer i give it a 4.5 so we have already talked about this movie right in a Mm -hmm. previous episode and i had given it four stars i had given it four as well yeah according to letterboxd and then after we watched it the other night i was like five stars fully and I am kind of teetering right now. I feel like 4.5 is actually the better rating for this movie. So I'm going to go back and change my letterbox rating to 4.5. It's like one of those movies. It's like it's such a distinctive, like specific situation, right? Because it's like one of those movies that is a, well, maybe the only movie that's really like less than the sum of its parts. But the yeah. sum of its parts are so fucking good. <laughs> you know, it's hard to explain. I mean, I did enjoy this movie so much better on the second watch. I just really did. And I walked away from it the other night, like thinking this movie is so excellent. Right. Yeah. And it is it's an excellent movie. But I think maybe I was on like a contact high from watching it, you know, climax yeah. style, maybe. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't know. Like the more we talk about it, I'm like, you know. You're right. I should have like stopped and thought about the things that I didn't think I needed to think about. You know? Maybe we need a, a formula, you know, like poignancy, five out of five, you know, like True. visual cinematography, mise en scène, whatever the fuck. Mise en scène. You know, um, high falutin, you know, <laughs> two out of five. Six out of five. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think 4.5 is a really good rating for this movie, and I will stand by that now. All right. Official. Awesome. Uh, and finally, who is the hottest guy in Midsummer? I'm going to say it's Pele. Pele, for sure. That man is some kind of fine. Yeah, and so he was played by Wilhelm Blomgren? Yep. And I don't know what is so attractive. I mean, he's obviously, like, physically attractive. But when he's talking to Danny, you know, I'm like, God, why can't someone say that shit to me? You know, like, hey, maybe this guy isn't right for you. Do you feel held by him? And I'm like, well, you can fucking hold me. Uh, you yeah. Know? Well, he's like, he's like the sweet nothing. So he's very calm, but also yeah. very sure and confident of himself in a really like Jesus like way, which is kind of a red flag. It kind of looks like Jesus too, I guess. Yeah. And so, and he's just like, everything's okay. I know it's okay because I made it okay. And That's right. I'm going to talk to you like this because you are held by me. And I will fall for it every time. Now, step into that fire as I skin your boyfriend. <laughs> you know? Whatever. I mean, he's ob- he obviously wanted her to be there, you know, to... He contrived everything, right? We already said that in this, but he will one day run that cult and that's the kind of man I can get behind. He has goals. He's driven. <laughs> My name is Finn and I've come to have sex with your family. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Midsummer. And as always, we would like to know what you thought about the conversation and the movie itself. Do you think it's polarizing? Tell us what you think on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Oh, do you want to lick my maypole? Mm. Feed me that exhaust pipe. Mm, that's no. a little dark. <laughs> I went there. Too much. <laughs> this is why no one wants to sleep with me. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> that also wraps up our content on the main feed this month, but we have more H24 to talk about over on Patreon, where we gave our patrons a poll of other H24 movies. And it seems like. We're going to be discussing Green Room. That's right. Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Apparently. At his finest. There's some bone-crushing, awful, squinchy moments in this. I can't, I can't wait, wait for you to see it. Oh my awesome. God, I'm so excited. Uh, you're going to look away. Um, no, I won't. <laughs> no, you won't. I will. <laughs> I never look away. <laughs> but we will probably have more polls and we'll definitely have more bonus content coming out for you. So head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers, join the family and help us pick what we watch y'all. Yeah. We also need some reviews on Apple podcasts or iTunes as we are inching closer to a hundred head over there. Leave us a five-star review. Tell us why you like us, and we are going to read that on Shooting the Flames. We are Kathy Bates hobbling towards the... (laughs) (laughs) It's called hobbling, (laughs) Paul. (laughs) All right, Chris. It is approaching Midsummer here. There needs to be a sequel of that movie where Kathy Bates sounds that resigned when she says, (laughs) it's called hobbling. (laughs) (laughs) She's done this so many times. She has her sacrificial mallet in her hand, and she's like, it's called hobbling and ball. fit right in with that cult. Give me a baby. <laughs> okay. What was I saying earlier? It's as hot as midsummer in here. It is. Let's uh, go off and have some sweet dreams. Maybe there's a Florence Pugh cry now. I, I can't do so. the... <laughs> <laughs> I can do the Claire Danes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a whole bunch of like cultists going <laughs> in unison. Could you imagine? I would turn it off. <laughs> God. No, I wouldn't. I would love the it. The you cannot cast in this movie. <laughs> Claire Day. Okay. Oh my God.